Uh, visiting today or you're here for the first time, we've been um, looking at Hebrews for a lot of this year actually. And this will be the last one for the year, although you'll know there's a bit more left in Hebrews to go and we'll finish that off at the start of next year. Um, and I'll, the reason we're stopping now is because it's entering into Christmas time and we're going to look at the Christmas story, which is important to do as well. And this morning we're looking at the link between um, faith and discipline. The faith that succeeds and the discipline that is required. When I was a kid, I was disciplined uh, in some areas and and undisciplined in other areas. I was disciplined in my music. So I, by high school, I was able to practice two, three, four hours a day, find that time as well as, um, you know, uh, go to many rehearsals and um, be disciplined as much as I could be. Even I I convinced the, um, in year 10, the head of year 10 to allow me to miss Australian studies so that I could practice all through the year. What a deal. So I was disciplined there. I had, a, I, had, I had a drive. But I was completely undisciplined in other areas. So I was hopeless at chores. Um, you know, I, my father would try to get me to mow the lawn and I would do everything to get out of it. Um, I resented doing chores and clean. My bedroom was perpetually messy. Um, And this is the case with all of us. We're disciplined in some areas, undisciplined in other areas. Christian faith requires discipline. And this is not always easy for us to accept. If you have a kind of a Christian faith that says, I want God to make me feel good, then you're not going to like it when you are experiencing discipline because it doesn't always feel good. In fact, it often doesn't feel good. You're going to struggle Now, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you this morning that the application of this passage is that you have to try really hard and you have to work really hard or that you have to grim and bear it like the way I did with mowing the lawn. In fact, as we shall see, God's discipline is perfect and loving and it always has a point. The first idea in this passage, which I think is a great you know, uh, principle of the Christian life, is that we should run with the discipline of Jesus. La, a few weeks ago, um, we looked at chapter 11, or Hannah preached on chapter 11, and she showed us um, that in that chapter there's a cloud of witnesses um, to God from Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and from Mo- Moses to Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Um, Jephthah, David to Samuel. And the writer to the Hebrews says, all these people that came before are all pointing to the faithfulness of God and they they had great faith. They were were, um, examples of faith. Um, They were witnesses to God. And we had to look to them for encouragement, uh, the writer to the Hebrews was saying. And in a mysterious way, they were witnesses to Christ as well before his incarnation. They wouldn't have used the language of Christ. They don't, they don't know him, but in a mysterious way, Christ is present um, in, their, in their lives. Um, they lived in the good of that promise of God, which has been realised in Christ. Christ has now come. So for us, um, the kind of faith that we're to have um, is filled with encouragement because we, we know that Christ has lived, died and risen and ascended. So he, but he's not visible to us. So, so there is a similarity still. So we, there's a similarity to the prophets of the Old Testament, the kind of faith we have. But Christ has come and he's given us his spirit, so we have more encouragement. 
And these witnesses were a powerful testimony to God because um, they, uh, they, they suffered. So in, in Greek, the word witness overlaps with the word martyr. People who died for their faith, they're the ultimate, aren't they? The ultimate witness to the faithfulness of God. And they give encouragement to other people who are believers. The prophets, they were martyr witnesses. Nehemiah 9.26 makes a point that God sent the prophets to the Israelites to warn, warn them to repent of their sins. But it was the Israelites in their rebellion who killed those prophets. Uh, in the New Testament, the, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, became a powerful witness to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus himself wrote to the angel of the church in Pergamum, uh, Revelation 2.13. He said, You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There, there, there's a cloud of witnesses in the New Testament. And there's even a cloud of witnesses today in our century. Um, the top 20 countries where Christian persecution occurs uh, uh, in descending order from worst to late, least worst, or they're still pretty bad, North Korea at the top, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, the Maldives, Saudi Arabia, Uzbekistan, Kenya, India, Ethiopia, Turkmenistan, and Vietnam. That's the top 20 worst. And that's, um, that's being tracked all the time based on um, evidence. Um, in 1966, persecution to Christians in China really stepped up uh, under Mao Zedong, who began the, um, you know, the Cultural Revolution. And house churches became illegal at this time. Many Christians suffered in jails and were killed. They were tortured. But these witnesses didn't die in vain. Rather, their faithfulness spurred on the church to keep growing. Um, and when Mao died in 1976, when I was born, um, other communist leaders... Uh, were arrested and China's extreme persecution of Christians eased a bit. So the, the church was able to was given a, an opportunity to grow a bit and a bit more, and the, the doors for the gospel opened a little bit more. And there was a pastor um, who was there at this time, a Chinese pastor, Pastor Zhang, who describes the state of the church during the Cultural Revolution. He said, "Not even pastors had Bibles. That's what it was like." Um, only the top, very top leaders possessed a Bible, if they could get one. And some pastors even hand-copied the Bible for themselves and carried around written, handwritten Bibles. And most leaders taught by singing hymns together. So this is not that long ago, you know, it's in my lifetime. Um, this changed in the 1980s when, in China when um, overseas Christians on behalf of... There's an organisation um, in Australia called Open Doors started smuggling in Bibles into China and eventually got to the point where over a million Bibles were smuggled in. And the, the pastor that I quoted before, he was in prison several times for his faith but didn't lose faith. In fact, he kept an evangel evangelism ministry in prison. He, he kind of, when you read about him, he sounds like one of the apostles, that, that kind of ministry. And then eventually a new Bible printing press started in China. Um, and so in the last 30 years, about, they, they estimate about 80 million Bibles have been distributed in China. But then this year, um, the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, um, did a news report saying that um, the persecution of Christians in China has ramped up again this year. Um, the Communist Party has put in these tougher laws and... Um, have been making Christians pledge loyalty to the state. 
and they're controlling who can be employed and who can't be employed and they're firing church leaders at will um, and, they're, and they're controlling the doctrine, church doctrine um, and one, one of the people that the ABC interviewed said, one of the pastors said, Jesus Christ is my only belief, my only loyalty is to Jesus Christ. God says you should love your enemies if they are hungry and give them food to eat if they are thirsty, give them water to drink. So we will pray for the non-believers. And it's just incredible to see that faith. Um, faith. Apparently about 1,500 churches have had their crosses torn off the top by the government. And uh, one analyst called it um, the, the most blatant attack on the church since the Cultural Revolution under the guise of enforcing building code regulations. Um, but despite all this attack on these Christians in China, it's growing so fast and uh, the church is growing so fast. And some people are estimating, um, church um, mission experts are estimating by 2030, China could be the world's biggest Christian country. That's amazing, I think, that in 14 years. So that will change world history if that occurs. So the Communist Party has tried to destroy the church before and failed, and in the past... Persecution has actually caused church growth. We can look to them and be inspired by the faith of the Chinese church, your brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering for their faith. And they're only 33rd on the list, China, of the worst persecuted Christians in the world. So with all of these witnesses in mind, the witnesses from the Old Testament that the Hebrews quoted, even the witnesses from the New Testament and the witnesses that we have in the world today, we can run the race with perseverance marked out for us. It says, let us, throw everything that he- let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance a race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That's the first uh, Hebrews 1b to 2a. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point, doesn't he? You might remember this, 1 Corinthians 9.24, run in such a way to get the prize. Throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles is describing the the discipline of Jesus that is required for the Christian to run the race. If you're going to run and you're going to win, you have to shed some weight. I learned something quite concerning this week from uh, my personal trainer at the gym, Jono, and he said, if you are um, a, a a male, an Australian male, 40 years old or over, and you do exercise, but eat normally. Normally for an Australian male, sort of, you know, your occasional burger and chips and beers, and you don't think about your diet, you just eat, eat. Then you will just put on one kilo a year for the rest of your life. It will just happen, you know, just, just by your metabolism changing and, and so on. Um, and so the only way to stop that is to be disciplined and eat more healthily. Going to the gym won't be enough. It requires discipline, changing my diet, all of that sort of thing. The kind of weight that we've got to shed for the Christian race, though, is a spiritual weight, isn't it? It's the weight that trips us up, that distracts us. It's our idols, it's our temptations, it's our addictions. We lack spiritual discipline, don't we, you and I, because... Not, not because we're undisciplined people, because as I've said earlier, we can be very disciplined in our workplace, maybe with our family. We're super organised with our family, some of us. Some of us are super organised 
um, with leisure. So, you know, with your calendar, you've marked out where all the long weekends are and you've organised a holiday for the whole year in January. We can be super disciplined in that area. The issue is not a lack of discipline, but it's what we put our, what we channel our discipline towards, isn't it? We want to win the career race so much that we're so disciplined in that area. In fact, we want to win it more than winning the race of Jesus. We want to win the leisure race more than winning the Christian race, I think. It is more important for us to be able to have that holiday than it is to win the Jesus race. I mean, intellectually, we want to do it. But really, if you look at our diaries, it doesn't show that we want to do it. But let me show you um, Jesus, who is described as, in Revelation 1 uh, 1 verse 5, the faithful witness. He's the ultimate witness. He's the, the witness of all witnesses. The ultimate witness martyr. In Hebrews 12 verse 2, he's described as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And Jesus stands in front of the cloud of witnesses, which is amazing to think in biblical history because he comes after all those people described by the writer to the Hebrews. And yet he is before them as well. Jude um, verse 5 says that Jesus at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3 that that the Israelites in the desert drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, which was Christ. Christ actually did come before those cloud of witnesses, even though they couldn't put words to it. Christ isn't just the final, ultimate witness to God, but he has been working since the beginning of time to point people to God. But more than this, in Jesus, faith reaches perfection. Uh, it It says in Hebrews 12, Verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a poignant moment when Jesus is dying on the cross, and people walk past and scorn him and shout at him and make, mock him. And then a bunch of religious people come along, priests and the writers of the law, the uh, the the, the um, teachers of the law and the elders, and they said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. They were mocking Jesus when they said he trusts in God, but it was true. In fact, he trusts in God more than anyone else. He trusts in God so much that he would be willing to go through his own execution, knowing that it was all part of God's plan. Jesus bore that cross. He plumbed the depths of tragedy, of disgrace. And he did this so that he would be made perfect in his suffering. And this was his joy. And he's not some kind of masochist. Is he enjoying the pain? No. Rather, his joy has the end in mind. He knows that he will ultimately end up sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. And more than that, he's got our end in mind. Um, He says to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, amazing image, picture this in your mind, that to those people who enter into his salvation, Jesus will, he will give the right to sit on his throne just as the Father gave him the right to sit on the throne. We will be given the right to sit on the throne with Jesus. 
This is our inheritance. This is our glorification. We will sit with Jesus on the throne in eternity. The anti-fall movement, the band I'm in with Paul, we sing a song called Glory For Me. And it's an old hymn that we've turned into a new song. And the point of the song is, I'm really excited because one day God's going to glorify me. Even though I'm experiencing trials and struggles right now, I'm going to be glorified. And we had this argument in the band because some of the band members were a bit uncomfortable by singing a song, Glory For Me, Glory For Me. That's the kind of chorus, you know, because we're kind of taught to resist the, the uh, individualistic church that's all about me, aren't we? But actually, I had to come to the defence of the, the Bible here and to the, the ministry of Jesus and say, no, um, the salvation that we get from Jesus isn't just forgiveness from your sins. That's part of it. It's not just a relationship with Jesus. That's part of it. But it's ultimately our glorification that we can sit on the throne, that we have a new resurrection body that will be in an eternal relationship with God in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why Jesus is suffering in joy. Um, listen to the words of the song. When all my labours and trials are over and I am safe on the beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory for me, glory for me. When by the gift of his infinite grace, I am accorded in heaven a place. Just to be there and to look on his face will through the ages be glory for me. And friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from a saviour I know will through the ages be glory for me. So the point of the first section arrives in verse 3 here, that um, when you're getting weary of your faith, when you are facing trials of different kinds, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus had joy when he suffered. You could have joy when you suffer too. Consider Jesus when you're struggling and facing trials. That's what is required to run the Christian race with the discipline of Jesus. Consider Christ who ran the race to win, who had such discipline that he suffered without complaint, the hostility and scorn of sinful people all the way to death. The second and last idea from this passage uh, is that we're to accept the perfect discipline of God. So the natural question is, why do I have to be disciplined? I didn't sign up for this. Why is God allowing me to have to go through this discipline process? The Chinese Christians would probably, some of them might be asking that question right now. The thing is, as verse 4 says, those people the writer to the Hebrews was addressing had not had to suffer to the point of death. You should actually be encouraged that you're being disciplined and refining your faith. And he quotes uh, Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. View your troubles with perspective. All sons and daughters are disciplined by their parents. 
Well, they're supposed to anyway. It uses a kind of a model of family that's suppo- you know, the ideal here. Even the Son of God was disciplined by his Father. Hebrews 5.8 Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. We accept the discipline for our fa- from our fathers and mothers when they give it to us because it's their proper jurisdiction. That's what they're supposed to do. It is their role. Parents try their best to discipline their children. Sometimes, though, we mess it up, don't we? Sometimes we're tired. We've had a long day at the office. We come home and make the dinner, and the kids, being kids, are silly and making lots of noise, and jumping on the couch and having lightsaber fights. And you're cooking the dinner, and you're trying to finish it and get it on the table, and they're knocking things over, and you say, Leo, get up on the table and sit on your chair. And he just ignores you and still has lightsaber fights. And, you know, Ezra, come to the dinner table now. We've got the food there, go cold. And he just ignores you and still has lightsaber fights. And then for the third and final time, Leo and Ezra, if you do not come to the table, you will not have any dinner tonight. And they just giggle at you. And so I grab their lightsabers and smash it over my knee. On the other hand, sometimes I'm inconsistent, see? Sometimes I make threats of punishment, like going, driving up to Canberra. Ezra, if you don't stop making a noise now, I'll put you on the side of the road and I'll drive away. (laughs) But of course I'm not gonna do that, am I? Because I'm weak and he knows it. (laughs) Either way, I know I can either, either be too harsh or too weak and it's hard to get it right, but you try your best. But actually it is important As a parent, I have to keep trying with discipline. Children actually need it, they want it even. Children who are not disciplined end up resenting their parents. It's a strange paradox, but that's the way it is. They say they don't want it, but really they do want it. Children feel more secure and loved when their parents tell them what to do. (laughs) When they create rules and standards and boundaries and say, work in those boundaries and we will have a happy household. If a parent doesn't do this, it says that the parent does not love their child. They don't feel responsibility for their child. They couldn't give, you know, they just don't care. We owe our physical existence to our parents as children, so we should respect them, shouldn't we? So how much more is that the case with God? As it says in verse 9, we have all had human fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them for it. And as I said earlier, this is the ideal. I know that there are people who didn't have fathers or who had abusive fathers or have had neglectful fathers who just, you know, came home from work and stared at the TV and drank a beer and didn't even talk to their kids. But in this ideal situation, this imaginary family we can imagine... We had fathers and mothers that disciplined us in a healthy and proportionate way. It says, verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. And then this is the point, but God, verse 10b, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline is perfect. God isn't sitting on the couch on his iPhone just flicking through Facebook. He's paying attention God isn't flying off the handle and losing control. When we experience hardship, verse 7 says, God is treating you as his children. 
And this is part of the Christian life. In fact, verse 8 says, if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And he's doing it for this point to make us holy. With God, suffering and hardships and trials are never pointless. I said earlier that Christ suffered in joy because he knows the purpose of this suffering, which is our salvation and glorification, sitting on the throne with him. But it is not an easy path for us to get there. Christ had to suffer and go through trials, and so will we too. Just after Paul was stoned, not to death, by the Jews in Antioch who opposed him, he said to his disciples, Paul's disciples, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In Psalm 119, verse 71, Psalmist makes a point this way. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. If you want to accept our place as children of God and go on and live in that discipline into eternity, then we must accept the discipline of our Father in heaven. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in The Problem of Pain, his probably most famous quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you want to know why God allows suffering, especially if you want to know how, why God allows suffering to Christians, it's one way God gets through to us. It is when we are suffering that we can hear his voice most profoundly sometimes. Sometimes you will learn the point of your suffering too, but then other times you won't. God knows, but you might not find out. This is the lesson that Job had to learn. Job 38, famously, God responds to Job, is questioning why he's suffering. God says, uh, tell me, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, Sometimes we will go through hardships as a church or as individuals and we won't find out why until we're sitting on the throne with Jesus and he'll tell us this is why that happened. But we do know this much that when we're struggling, we're wrestling through the trials of life, it's not pointless. So what should you do? I want to finish with four applications for what not to do and one to do. Negative applications. First of all, this is the wrong thing to do. You could resign yourself to the trials and struggles of life. You are like a stoic who just knows that nothing happens in the world outside of God's will. So you just take it when it comes. But this isn't good because you're seeing God as an all-powerful father but not a loving father. You won't be a willing receiver of the father's discipline but a defeated child who sees the father as a harsh taskmaster so don't just resign yourself to it secondly you could accept the discipline with a grim sense of getting it over as soon as possible but again we might relate to our struggle with defiance but we're not going to be thankful to god thirdly you might accept your discipline and hardship from god with self-pity which will lead you to collapsing this is just your lot You've been dealt the wrong hand by God. But you'll be that person who thinks you are the only one in the world who suffers like this. 
you will see yourself as hardly done by and wrongly think that everyone else has escaped trials and you will be lost in your self-pity. And I do see a lot of adults, Christians, who get to their older age and have experienced trials and struggles and suffering. We all do. But some who've gone down that path and end up bitter. Hating God. You might see hardships as punishment from God and resent it. Uh, In the time of the Roman Empire, when the book of Hebrews was written, most of their gods that they worshipped were vengeful gods. Anything bad that happened was because the gods were punishing them. And so if you're relating to God like that, you're saying, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? You think that God is unjust. And you never think, what is God trying to teach me today? So to conclude, here's the fifth application, which I hope we can all do. Accept discipline as coming from a loving father. The 4th century uh, Christian theologian, Jerome, said this. This is scary. The greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us when we sin. In other words, the supreme punishment is when God leaves us alone. He thinks we're unteachable and he walks away. But the Christian child of of God should know that a father's hand will never cause his child a needless fear. A needless tear, sorry. I'll say that again. A father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. And that everything can be used to make us wiser and more holy. You will stop feeling self-pity if you can do this. And resentment. And our constant complaining about life and God, that'll stop when we remember that there is no discipline of God which does not arise out of love and is not aimed at good. I'll say that again without all the negatives. I've said it in three triple negatives. In positives, if you accept discipline at the hand of God as something designed by your Heavenly Father for your good, then you will cease to feel resentful and rebellious. Rather, as the psalmist writes, you will have calmed and quieted your soul and you'll be able to run the race with the discipline of Jesus. Let's pray that we can do that. Lord God, thank you that you are the Father who loves us and that um, you discipline us too. And while we don't like it when it comes, while we we struggle and wrestle, we pray that we can learn to trust in you even when um, the trials and the suffering and the struggles of life are so intense. Um, we pray that we can trust in your, your love and your, your care for us. And we thank you that nothing that we experience is without a point and that one day we will be glorified and be sitting with you on your throne. Amen.